I got nervous when you said you had an announcement. I was like, oh, man, is this going to be? Before we get into the text, I wanted to thank y'all for, on behalf of Stephen and Tammy and their kids, the Coleman family, and for on behalf of Lil and I, uh, just all the condolences and the meals that you've given us um, since the passing of my father-in-law two weeks ago tomorrow. He was a great man. A lot of you knew him. Most of you knew him. He was a lunatic. Uh, he's just crazy, big personality, just a guy that, that left plenty of material to sit around a hundred firesides and tell stories about. So I look forward to doing that in the days to come. But uh, thank you all for the way you've supported us and um, his, his imprint. Even though he was never really a part of Red Oak, his imprint on, even on Red Oak is uh, undeniable. And just really grateful for that. Uh, this past week, uh, Stephen and Tammy, me and Little, uh, were sitting in the air- airport in Asheville. And, uh, and I don't know if you've flown lately, but I would recommend you do not. Uh, it's never, it's never, uh, it's always, it's always like, uh, well, if you're going to fly, don't listen to a true crime podcast about someone getting killed on a plane before you fly anyway and show up extremely nervous. But, uh, cause I did that, but, um, we got there, we're going to watch Tuck, his first football game, his first college football game. It's a pretty big deal. Um, so we're going to fly from Asheville to Charlotte, from Charlotte to up to Virginia because they're playing out in Virginia beach and, um, and our flight got delayed. So we had to come home, watch it on TV. We weren't, there's no way we're going to make it. And and it's not, you're not over-spiritualizing something in that situation to go, okay, I'm going to trust the Lord with this. Not, not like, oh, I bet this airplane's going to crash. It's probably, it's probably more subtle than that. For whatever reason, we weren't supposed to get on that airplane. And it was a good reminder, having studied this text, um, we turned around, came home, and we had a good time. We watched the game at the house with a lot of friends and family and I think, I think as Christians, we have to wrestle with a couple of things before we go into this text. Every believer's got to wrestle with the sovereignty of God. And, and that's, a, that's a hard thing to, to, to sort of come to terms with because some people will lean really strongly towards um, a high view of the sovereignty of God. And then other people tend to categorize that like how do I make allowances for that because if God is sovereign then why do bad things happen every one of us is no doubt every one of us has dealt with that question we call it the problem of evil if God is good why is evil so prevalent if God is all-powerful why doesn't he stop things from happening if God is good why does he allow things to happen and you can really get yourself worked up over that and sometimes when we're studying the scripture, um, God gives us answers, but sometimes those answers aren't specific to the questions we're asking. They're broader answers that we can just learn to trust in God with the things we don't understand. And Joseph's story tonight is, is one of those type situations, I think. Um, before we dive into it, uh, I, I want to I point out a couple of things that I think are worth noting to set this text up or to set this this sermon up. The first one is, last week we saw that Jacob, who is Joseph's dad, Jacob, Jacob put Joseph in a situation of where he had status. 
So Joseph is, is like younger than his 11 brothers, right? He's younger than or, or 10 of the brothers. I get the counting so confused because then, anyway, he's the youngest dude. And then he has, then, then there's one more boy eventually. But he's basically, but it's confusing because Joseph is the youngest, but he's the oldest of the original and favored wife. So this is where polygamy, you realize polygamy is just a horrible idea on a number of fronts, you know. Um, but, okay, but Reuben was the firstborn, but Reuben's firstborn status had been taken away from him because of an atrocious act he committed, and we saw that a couple of weeks ago. So, and, and keep in mind, we're talking about a culture where firstborn status was super, super significant. Like in our culture, firstborn status is not that significant other than that person might be uh, given responsibilities um, um, like, like to plan a funeral or to be the executive of the state or something like that. In my family, not so. My like fifth, the fifth kid in my family is, is already slated to do that because nobody trusts me to handle stuff like that. Um, but, but so we don't, have, we don't have that firstborn significance. So, you know, like when Paul writes to the Colossians and he says, that he, Jesus, is the firstborn over all creation. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all of creation. What he's saying is he has inherited the sovereign, providential, majestic, authoritative position over all of creation. And that literally, the writer of Hebrews says, Jesus upholds all of that creation by the word of his power. So firstborn status, um, Paul also says in Colossians that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. That means he's the first to conquer death. He has status over death. So for Christians, the fact that we are brought into eternal life, that happens because of Jesus's authority over death. He's the firstborn over death. So Joseph, what happens in this story, I want you to think about where we've gotten to at this point. Think about Jacob's sons. They are thugs and gangsters. <laughs> like, I try to think about this week, is it okay to say that in church? Is it okay to talk, call? They are the heads of the tribes of Israel. I'm pretty sure they have a significant role in redemptive history. They're crazy. They are crazy. If you don't think so and you don't agree with that, wait till next week. Just wait till chapter 38. Okay, or look back at the incident where they avenged their sister. Okay, they're just, but it's at a, but the thing is, we lose a lot of context because we don't live in that type of a society. It was a, it was a tooth and claw society where survival was a constant fight and a constant war. And along comes this son who displays, the best we can tell, there's no doubt that Jacob showed Joseph favoritism. But what we learn about Joseph for the rest of, look, 50 chapters in Genesis, a quarter of the book is given to Joseph's life. That's more than is given to Abraham's life. And what we, what we learn as we zoom in on this guy is a couple of things. He knew the Lord intimately, he trusted God totally, and he endured hardship faithfully. That's what we learn about him. Like, he loved the Lord and he trusted God. And whatever came, he just said, God, you, you're in charge, you got me. 
So from an early age, Joseph begins to emerge out of these other brothers as he's different. And what's different about him is that the Lord has a hand of blessing on him because repeatedly in the story it will say, and the Lord was with Joseph, and the Lord was with Joseph, and the Lord remembered Joseph. But the other thing that will run parallel to that is Joseph was faithful, Joseph was obedient, Joseph was faithful, Joseph was obedient. So you've got the faithfulness of Joseph and the sovereign hand of God guiding him. There's something bigger going on here than just Joseph was, the, was like the spoiled youngest kid who got his way. Something much larger. In a framework of redemptive history, when we say redemptive history, we're talking about from Genesis 3, when sin entered into the world, original sin became a thing, and we all inherited that, and we all sinned in Adam, with Adam, we were there sinning, and so there was a need for salvation. God began to do a work in a broken and an increasingly spiraling, out-of-control world God began to plan a way to enter into the world. And one of the things that God does is throughout Old Testament history, he raises up these figures who are deliverers. They're what we would call types of Christ. They're types of messianic figures or deliverers. And Joseph is one of those. God is going to raise this man up out of a crazy family, a crazy family dynamic, He's going to raise him up out of slavery in Egypt, and he's going to use him not only to save his family, but ultimately to be a pivotal figure in the entrance of the, the ultimate Christ and deliverer into the world to bring salvation to all people. Joseph's story is a, bit, a whole lot bigger story than I think we, could, we can understand if we don't study this thing in its entirety, which we're going to do over the next few weeks. So, this is something that I think um, we see throughout history in the Old Testament and the New Testament is that God is often moving and working in a way that in the moment, in the here and now, we don't understand what's going on. It's confusing. I'll give you a couple examples from the book of Acts before we, before we dive into the, the, the main point and application from Joseph's story. Stephen is, is martyred. He's the first Christian martyr, okay? So if you go to the book of Acts, this is the book, and we studied through this a couple years ago. This is the book that covers the period of time right after, right after Jesus ascends into heaven. It's, it's, the, it's the earliest um, like documentation of the first century church. And it tells the story of the spread of the gospel to the whole world. And what the catalyst for the spread of the gospel is, is persecution and hardship. Because all of the Christians sort of huddle in place and gather together after Jesus ascends. And they're like, oh my goodness, what are we going to do? And then persecution drives them out of the city of Jerusalem. So God uses persecution to drive his messengers into the Roman Empire to take the gospel. Three centuries later, the empire has been evangelized. Great, largest, greatest move of evangelism in history, some people would say. Second thing is this, there's a, there's a scene in the book of Acts where Paul is speaking to, it's in Acts 14, he's speaking to some young disciples, some young believers, and he says to them, and he's coaching them up, he's training them up, he's discipling them up, and he says, he says, listen to me, through much tribulation will you enter into the kingdom of God. Through much tribulation will you enter into the kingdom of God. The motif 
the fabric, the, the, the consistent pattern throughout Scripture of redemption is that God's people often face persecution, but the harder you squeeze the church, the more she grows, the more she flourishes, and this should give us great hope in this day and age. Amen? The day that we're living in, we know persecution is coming, and here's what we can rest in. No matter how hard Satan and his work or the world and its work squeeze the people of God, no matter how hard, the church will always flourish under persecution. The church will always conquer. The church will always prevail, but will prevail by advancing the kingdom of Jesus, which is the kingdom of the gospel. It's not an earthly kingdom. It's not a kingdom with walls and, and, and armies. It's a spiritual kingdom that is, that is moving forward to take from the darkness those who are enslaved and in bondage. And so the story of Joseph really, really helps us to understand that. It's a gospel story. So if we walk through the text, there's a couple things I want to point out from the text that Rob read. The first one is Joseph's responsibility and faithfulness. We mentioned earlier that at a young age, his dad has given him, this given him this responsibility. And I think we have to pause here and go, okay, what probably happened was Jacob probably set Joseph up for failure a little bit. Or maybe not failure, but he set him up for, to be in a very, he put him in a very difficult situation because Jacob's got these crazy sons who are like wild, man. They are wild. And then Jacob, uh, Joseph comes along and shows himself to be very competent. It reminds me of the way David is described when David is being described to King Saul. And in that passage, um, one of Saul's um, uh, cabinet members or servants says, there's a guy named David, and he's very mature, he's well-spoken, he's articulate, he's, very, he's beyond his years, he's strong, he's proven himself in battle as a young man. Joseph is like that. So Joseph's given this coat which represents status. He's basically put in a position of, he's like a foreman over his brothers, and it doesn't go well. And, but he brings this bad report in verse 2 to his dad. I don't know what the report is. I don't know what the report is because it doesn't tell us. But in verses 12 and 13, Jacob sends him out to Shechem where the boys are working to go bring him another report. Now, I don't know if, they're, if he's concerned that they're not efficient in their work or if he's concerned that they're not, you know, that they're, that they're actually, you know, people, you know, the guy that works at the factory and then spends 40 minutes in the bathroom playing on his phone on his bathroom break. You know, like he's robbing the company, right? Robbing, are they robbing the company? Are they ruining the, like, like we, we're trying to run an operation, go check on your brothers and report back. He's, J, uh, Joseph seems to be the manager, of this operation. Well, guys, Joseph's 17. I, his brothers are in their 20s and 30s. You, you put yourself in that situation. Not in Joseph's situation. In the brother's situation. That's not going to go well. And I think Joseph is probably, when you're 17, you're a little bit naive. Amen? And you think you're not. You are pretty sure you know, when you're 17, when you're 20, when you're 22, oh, it's stepping on toes. When, you've, when you just got a year of Bible college or you've been married for three months, you don't know as much as you thought you knew. And life teaches you some hard stuff, man. And Joseph's like, 
he's, he's ready to roll, man, clipboard in hand. He's like, yeah, Dad, I'll, okay, Pops, I'll head to Shechem. I'll bring you. He's ready, man. He's, he's going to make this thing profitable. Folks been skimming off the top long enough. We're going to clean it up. We know what we, what we stand to, to make here. And so, so I think we got to be careful in how we process the interaction between Joseph and his brothers. I think Jacob may have set him up for, for, to be in a really difficult situation. So he gets out there, and then we see Joseph's faithfulness in the fact that when he arrives where his brother's supposed to be, they're not there. And so he starts just wandering around looking for him. He can't find him. He's wandering around looking for him. And then he runs into this guy, and there's providence of God, faithfulness of Joseph. What would most people do? Get there? Well, they're not here. I'm going home. Like he just walked quite a few miles, a day or two's journey to get to where his brother's supposed to be. They're not there. And he's like, i got to find them, man. i got to find them. That's my job. That's my task. So he's looking, he's looking, he's looking. Then God brings this, this dude along who knows where they're at. I don't know how that guy knew where his brothers were 12 miles away, but he's like, over there, they're over in Dothan. So he goes to Dothan. It's not in Alabama. It's actually a different Dothan, if you were wondering. <laughs> you know, like, what are them boys doing in Alabama? <laughs> and so, ah, maybe it was deer season. I don't know. So, so he, he, they, Joseph goes and he finds the brothers. Now, here, something that emerges out of the story right here is that when they see him coming, they immediately conspire to kill him. So, so there's, there's, two, there's two internal themes or threads that run through this story. Two threads that run through the story of Joseph. One is Joseph's faithfulness. We've already said that. The other is the hatred of his brothers. They are, they are consumed with hatred. They are controlled by hatred. Can you imagine? They see him coming and instantly everybody's on the same page except Reuben. Let's kill him. How do, you go from, how do you go from taking care of livestock to let's commit murder? Well, it was in their hearts. There's even, I think there's, there's a lesson to be learned here about the nature of human depravity, the nature of the human heart. And they, they're like, let's kill him. And so then Reuben steps up and Reuben's like, whoa, 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 whoa we can't, let's don't kill him. Now, there, there is speculation on why Reuben would do this. Some people, some commentators say Reuben was a good guy. He didn't want his brother to get killed. This is a, this is a, a very noble thing that he's doing. He's, he's the oldest, even though he's been removed as the firstborn in terms of status. He's still got influence, and he's saying, no, no, no we're not going to kill our brother. Other commentators say because Reuben had lost his firstborn status, he wants to try to come back into graces and favor with the father, and so he wants to preserve uh, Joseph's life. I don't know. I don't know, I just know that Reuben intervenes, so they decide not to kill Joseph. Instead, they throw him in a pit. We're not told if they think the pit's got water in it or not. It's a well. I don't know if they thought it had water in it, but they throw him in the pit. Then, they sit down to eat. Have you ever watched like, you ever watched like a gangster movie where dudes will commit some atrocious crime and then they just have a big meal? You're like, how do you eat after that? Like if, if you have something happen and you're like, like if you go through a traumatic experience, most people who are not sociopaths can't sit down and have a meal, right? Like you can't, it's not like, I know what, let's murder our brother. No, instead of doing that, i tell you what, let's, when he gets here, let's physically assault him. Let's beat him to a pulp. Let's rip his coat off of him and let's throw him into an old cistern. Then 
let's have lunch. Like you see like, like the sociopathic twisted nature of these guys. And I just wonder, like in my mind, in my imagination, I wonder, what did Joseph, when Joseph shows up, I don't know what his posture was. But regardless of what his posture was, what, what panic must have been incited when his brothers went hands-on with him? They began to strike him, beat him, hold him down, rip that, no telling what they're saying to him at this point. They throw him in the pit. I can't imagine the fear. I can't imagine the panic. Well, so then uh, Judah says, um, I'll tell you what, instead of killing him, let's make some money off of him. Instead of killing him, let's sell him as a slave. We can make 20 shekels of silver. He'll bring 20 shekels of silver. He's a good-looking kid, man. He can do 50 push-ups. I'm broken. Like, he's, he's a young, strong. Look at him. He can, let's sell him and make some money. So instead of killing him just for our own benefit of getting him out of the way now it's let's profit off of him he's costing us profit let's profit off of him and so Judah's the one that spearheads the idea that they would sell him but I do think I do think that as Joseph is being sold to these slave traders who are headed towards Egypt I do think that we can str- like draw a strong line towards another move of the sovereignty of God at this point what God is doing, we talk about, we're going to talk a little bit um, here in just a minute about what we mean when we talk about the providence or the sovereignty of God. What God is doing is he is with Joseph. He gives him favor at a young age, and Joseph receives favor from those around him. He preserves his life when his brothers want to kill him. He preserves his life when he's thrown in the pit, and he then puts him in the hands of slave traders. I think Maybe the most significant verse in the whole passage is the last verse when it's like, oh, and he ended up at Potiphar's house. Potiphar's an important person. He's the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff for, for the Egyptian military. That's a, significant, that's a significant line. And if we remove Genesis 38 that we're going to study next week, because Genesis 38 is like a time capsule inserted. It's like we pause. It's like if you've ever watched various Star Wars shows and programs and movies. Right now, what's, what's, there's this trend on Disney Plus where they're like, ooh, boom, here's this offshoot story, The Mandalorian. Here's this offshoot story about, you know, Baby Yoda or whatever. But it's all part of the bigger, but it's like, you get, like, what? Now, when did this happen? Was this before Luke Skywalker or after? I don't remember. Like, the Star Wars fans are geeking out right now, like, I love this preacher. And then other people are like, this guy's a complete dork. And so, but at any rate, y'all know what I'm saying. Like, next week's story is kind of like, we insert this story, then we're going to jump back out of that and get right back in the story of Joseph. If we jump over, if we jump over chapter 38 and we go straight to chapter 39, The verse that we closed with or finished with in the text tonight says that Joseph ends up in Potiphar's house. Two verses later, in 39 verse 2, it says that the Lord is with him in the house of Potiphar. And he advances. The favor of God is with him. That's going to continue to be the pattern. Later in that chapter, he's wrongly accused. We'll see this story play out in two weeks. He's wrongly accused of a horrible crime. He's put in prison, and it says in verse 21 of chapter 39, in prison, the Lord is with him. So the Lord is continually with Joseph. God is doing a work in and through Joseph. But he's doing this work in the middle of a, of a story that none of us can fathom. 
like I cannot fathom living through as a 17, 18, 19-year-old dude the story that Joseph lived through. I want to point out a couple of theological thoughts and applications. A couple of theological thoughts of applications. The first one is this. The very slavery that keeps Joseph in bondage is the means through which salvation comes to the world but also the means through which salvation comes to Joseph. This is a gospel application. The slavery that we are in, where everyone's born into slavery to sin, which becomes the means through which we receive salvation. Recognizing our condition before a holy God, recognizing our inability to save ourselves, recognizing that there's no good in us. Some of, some of you, your testimony is that you got to your end. You were at the bottom of the pit and God lifted you up. You were broken and God put you back together. You were consumed with sorrow and God gave you hope. You were overwhelmed with sadness and God gave you joy. The gospel takes the very slavery and bondage of sin and decay and brings us out of it and uses it for God's good and God's glory and our holiness in our lives. The second thing that we see is that the providence of God continually shows itself in the story. We've referenced this already, but the way that Joseph finds his brothers, the dreams that Joseph had that we studied last week, those dreams are from God. Think about this, talking about a society that, like a time in history where dreams and visions were pretty commonplace. Do y'all remember that Jacob had visions and dreams? I mean, significant dreams. Significant dreams. The night before he went to meet his brother Esau, do y'all remember that? Significant dream. Jacob had dreams and visions. Abraham, Abraham had these dreams and visions of the Lord. Like this is something that Joseph as a small child would have heard the stories of his grandfather Abraham. Jacob, Joseph's father, knew his grandfather Abraham. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Joseph grew up. Look, my son Tucker grew up with me when we would be in deer camp or, or driving on hunting trips. I would tell him stories that my grandfather told us about the mountain people that we descended from who on one side, my granddad's dad's family, they were, they were revenuers, and my granddad's mom's family, they were bootleggers. And during Prohibition, these two families were fascinating stories in the 20s and 30s. My granddad tells me stories when he was like 8, 9, 10 years old. He's in the car with his granddad, who's a revenuer, who arrests this crazy guy. They get in a gunfight in an A model. The bullet ricochets off the floor, goes into my great-great-granddad's shin. They fight. He gets the guy handcuffed and takes him to jail. My granddad's sitting in the rumble seat. Y'all know what a rumble seat is? He's sitting in the rumble seat. That's a fascinating story my granddad told me. He told me that story 50 times. You know what I did? I told it to my son. And tonight I told it to y'all. I told it to my son. He told me about his one great-granddad had a moonshine steal under a, a culvert on the edge of town, and they would roll out. His other, great, his other granddad would roll out, and these revenues are looking for these steals, and his other granddad's making shine. Like, it's like a Dukes of Hazard episode, man. He's making shine, like Andy Griffith or whatever. You know, like, like I tell these stories. Joseph knew the stories of his father and grandfather's visions. Like, when I have a dream... When I have a dream, I wake up and go, that was weird. Or I wake up and go, I'm shook. Like, that was intense. A dream where someone you care about is in peril or dies. A dream where you're trying to punch to, 
and you can't, and you know, like and you wake up in a pain. I don't. Th- I think in, jo- in in Joseph's naivety, naivete, however you say that word. I think when he shows up, there's a verse that we read last week. Verse eleven. It says this. And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. There's a marker right there. Jacob goes, okay, I know how dreams work. And these dreams are significant, I believe. But I know I'm not going to bow down to my son. So I don't know what to do with this. So he kept it in his mind. I believe that the argument could be made that on Joseph's journey, He knew the promises of God and his faith was so strong and God was so close to him in the pit. And my my image of him shackled walking in a line of slaves all the way to Egypt, that the Lord was with him. And I believe somehow, and I don't know how this is possible, but we see it in scripture and many people have this testimony that he had joy, he had confidence, He had the peace of God with him and he walked with his head up and he knew I am a child of Yahweh. And not only have I had dreams and visions, but in Genesis 15, it is recorded that my grandfather had a vision that his people would become the greatest nation in the world through whom the Messiah, the hope and salvation of the world would come. But first, they would have to go into 400 years of slavery. I am that slave as he walks along. God's got this. Just keep walking. Just keep plodding. Just keep heading towards Egypt because we've got a 400-year road ahead of us before God brings us out of this. I think what stabilizes people in the most difficult times and seasons of life is a high view of the sovereignty of God, but more than that, a real abiding understanding of the presence of God in your life, that his promises are true, that when he speaks, there's authority behind that. Like Rob shared with us earlier tonight, that the word of God has authority for our lives, that we don't approach God's word and wrestle with it as if we would master it and then wield it. We approach it and wrestle with it so that we might submit to it, so that we might come under it. God is with, y'all, the scripture is full of the promise that in your most difficult struggle, God's going to be with you. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you're with me. When I bury a child, you're with me. When I bury a parent, you're with me. When I get a bad report from the doctor, you're with me. When the economy collapses or persecution comes to God's people, he's with us. Joseph got it, man. Joseph understood. He didn't understand it in full. But he was one foot at a time in front of the other, trusting in Yahweh. He learns a lesson that many of us have learned and others have yet to learn but will. Bloody and battered, confused, scared beyond anything we can imagine, Joseph is locked up in slave shackles. But it is this very move that God was using to orchestrate not only the events of a nation, but to prepare Joseph to become a type of Christ, a messianic deliverer who would save his people from their oppressors. He would even save his would-be murderers from their own 
sin and the consequences of that sin. Joseph knew two things. God is sovereign and God is good. In conclusion, let me, let me, let me read you a quote from Piper. John Piper says, the, John Piper, if you're not familiar with him, he says long sentences. Okay. With really funny voice inflections, which I'm not going to impersonate. John Piper says, the point of the story of Joseph beginning in Genesis 37 and going until Genesis 50 is that God in his sovereignty saved the killers and in doing so preserved the household of Judah from whom which could then come the lion of Judah who would save all of the Christ killers including me and you. That's the point of the story of Joseph. Man, think about this. Think about this. What's going to happen over the next 12, 13 weeks as we close out Genesis, next three months, we close out Genesis, is this. These people, Joseph goes into Egypt. God's going to raise him up to a very powerful position. His brothers are going to come there. They had been a nomadic and wandering people. This is not, this is just, I'm thinking out loud now, okay? Just think about this. God moves them through, through a global or a locally global famine he moves all of the sons of Jacob and Jacob down into Egypt, a place that significantly had been a problem for God's people up to this point. Now he moves them there. Sometimes the sovereign hand of God works in ways that we're like, what? What is going on? Moves them to Egypt. In Egypt, over 400 years, they grow into a massive and powerful nation. God told Abraham, when they get to the, that, that 400-year mark, at that time, the, other, the people in the land of Canaan will be ready for judgment. Their, their iniquity will be full. Their sin will be at a point where I'm going to bring judgment. And in one act that takes 400 years to build to, God works on three fronts. He saves and delivers Israel because he took Joseph to Egypt. He brings Israel out of Egypt and judges the Egyptians for their iniquity. He moves Israel under Joshua into Canaan and judges the Canaanites for child sacrifice and sex trafficking and every other kind of terrible thing and establishes a people and in the middle of that people establishes the tribe of Judah through whom all of the prophecies of the Messiah would come and then eventually disperses those people throughout the nations so that when the gospel would come and be fulfilled, the gospel could go to the ends of the earth through God's people. God is moving in history, in the big things, and in the little things, and in the hard things, and in the easy things. And Joseph shows us that. And it's important that we learn it and worship God. Joseph was faithful to worship Jesus. Let us be faithful to worship Jesus and watch God move in a powerful way in our own lives. I'll close with this from Ephesians 2. In Jesus' death, the ultimate act of evil worked for our good. In Jesus' death, the ultimate act of evil worked for our good. And in what way did it work for our good? Well, we, we were like Joseph's brothers. We we're the killers of Christ. It is our sin that he went to the cross for. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince and the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, 
among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has a plan and a purpose for each of us, and God's plan and purpose for humanity is the gospel story of Jesus Christ. And Joseph is helping us understand that story. And if you don't know Jesus tonight, you've never called on the name of Jesus, you've never put your faith and your trust in him, our prayer tonight is that you would do that. You talk to one of the pastors or someone that's here at the church, and you'd put your eyes on Jesus and begin that journey, that faith walk, one step in front of the other, experiencing the peace, the hope, the joy, the stabilizing faith that God will bring to your life as he does this work in you. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you'd take your word tonight and settle it deep into our hearts. May we learn from Joseph as we learn from Jesus. A, a difficult story to read when we let our imaginations take us into the story. We, when we imagine the overwhelming panic of a 17-year-old kid who by all intents and purposes, was doing his best to be faithful to you and faithful to his daddy. And the very ones who should have protected and watched over him would seek to put him to death, would beat him, would sell him into slavery, and would lie to cover it up. And a sociopathic act would have a meal and then put their arm around the aging father and comfort him over the lie that they had told him. And in all of that, we can be comforted to know that you're bigger than a story like that. In fact, that story fits into the bigger story that you're telling. Help us to grow and learn and be encouraged by that in our own lives. In Jesus' name.